So today we're going to be in Joshua chapter 4. Okay, what we saw the last time in chapter 3 was the great preparation that the children of Israel made in crossing the Jordan with all its symbolism. They went from the east side of the Jordan to the crossing over to the west side of the Jordan. And more importantly, what the crossing of the Jordan represents, we see that really it represents, the New Testament tells us, a type of baptism. And we can see that John the Baptist took that over, that role. It was a type of John the Baptist. When he came, he started baptizing in the Jordan. The crossing of the Jordan for the children of Israel also uh, signifies redemption, God redeeming his people. Second chances. We know what happened the first time they tried to go into the promised land. didn't go too well. And also, even the prodigal son, in a sense, you can see a lot of these things in the... Uh, in the crossing of the Jordan. Tonight, we're going to see the memorialization of that crossing and how God wants the event to be burned into the hearts of the children of Israel with this memorial. So let's start with verse 1. It says, And it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from every tribe, and command them, saying, Take for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of, your, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood firm, you shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. So Joshua commands them, take stones from the riverbed, the riverbed in the Jordan, and bring them to the other side where you crossed. And we'll see what that means. We also see how God is concerned with each tribe personally. He spoke to them corporately, and then he would speak to them personally. Each tribe had uh, significance. In Genesis 49, you see Jacob speaking about his 12 sons and prophesying about the individuality of each of the tribes, right? So uh, you see one representative from each of the 12 tribes. He's a personal God, we see there. Verse 6. That this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel forever. Stones were to be a memorial. We saw in the men's retreat uh, at the end of September how it only took one generation, okay, one generation for these kids to go bad. Josiah was a great king. His father was not so great, nor was his grandfather. Uh, but Josiah's three sons were awful. They were wicked. And Josiah's grandson was, was an awful, wicked man. Uh, so you see, it only took one generation for people to forget and for them to not have that relationship with God and for things to really go downhill. So successive generations needed that physical reminder of what God did for the children of Israel. Like the Passover, they needed continual reminders of their relationship with him. But the interesting thing is in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, Jeremiah talks about the covenant that the children of Israel broke with God, and he had to make a new covenant where not so much 
would there be the memorializations, but the law would be written on their minds and be written on their hearts. That's a great scripture. Sometimes we need physical reminders, too, as we so easily forget what God has done for us. Sometimes it even comes in the form of people around us, reminding us how good we have it and how God has blessed us in our lives. And all of us can count our blessings. I remember having a discussion with Sam uh, about a month ago, and just he was asking me how I was. I was asking him how he was. We were comparing war stories. And then he told me a story about his friend who was really in bad shape, and we're like, whoa, we don't have it so bad. You know, you, you can always look at your life no matter, you know, it depends on the framework that you're looking at. No matter how you look at it, you could always see the blessings that God has given us. The fact that we're all able to make it here tonight is a blessing. So, verse 8. It says, And the children of Israel did so, just as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones from the midst of the Jordan, as the Lord has spoken to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel and carried them over with them to the place where they lodged, and laid them down there. Then Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they are there to this day. Now, it appears that there were two groups of stones. Very interesting is that there's a lot of talk about rocks and stones in the Bible. You know, the Petra, the Lethoi, you know, the different types in the Greek of stones that are spoken about in the Old and the New Testament. You see uh, that God is the rock. God has always been known as the rock in the Old Testament. We see that Jesus is the rock in the New Testament. Uh, God told Moses, speak to the rock. First he said, strike, to the ro- strike the rock. And then afterwards he said, speak to the rock. And that rock represented Christ. You see that G- or Peter, in the book of Peter, spoke about the living stones that we are, that make up the spiritual house, where Jesus is the cornerstone, the foundation. Again, Jesus Christ is known as, as the rock also. So, number one, these two groups of stones, one in the riverbed where the children of Israel started from. You see that there's a, a memorial set up there. Now, other translations make it a little clearer. You can pretty much see it in here, but if you take another more uh, thought translation, it kind of makes it a little bit clearer. But there's two, two um, memorials, one in the riverbed and one where the final destination was to be. And the imagery here is that we're supposed to be reminded where we came from. That's important. Those uh, stones in the riverbed were a picture of where we came from. And I think that's good for us not to get a big head, so to speak not to be prideful. We should always see where God has taken us from, right? Second thing is, where has God brought us? And to me, that's a picture of thankfulness. Look where God has taken us in our lives. And we can all see the difference. It's like a, it's a math equation. It's a sub- subtraction. You take where you are now minus where you used to be and subtract it and see all that distance that God brought you. And I think that if any of us have been in the Lord for a while, that distance gets greater and greater as you grow in the Lord. And three, the third part is when we decide to obey and follow him, wherever that may lead us, future, that's a commitment because life is really a journey. So where we eventually end up, okay, is that, is that future based on our present commitment to the Lord. Unfortunately, too many people attribute their successes to themselves. Uh, you know, they need to see God's hand in their journey. If any of you have been uh, in any field for a while, in a business field, me on the police force, it's like you see people, everybody starts at the bottom, and some people end up getting to the top. And there's an expression that we use, they forgot where they came from, right? 
they forgot the way they treat the little guy that they used to be the little guy. And as Christians, we never should forget where we came from. Let's never get puffed up to the point where we think we're something special. This church is going to grow. Over the years, it's going to grow. Where are we all going to be? You know, where's God going to take us? I don't know. Let's never get a haughty attitude towards, uh, towards ministry and towards people. There's, um, I remember the elders, we had gotten together and we were talking about um, doing maybe one or two guys doing their testimony at the men's retreat. And somebody said, I grew up, my testimony is boring. I grew up in a Christian home, never really turned to drugs or anything bad and then came back like the prodigal son. So I think my testimony would be boring. But my response is this. Even if you started out well, and the Lord, and you've grown in your Christian walk, there's always going to be a difference from where you started and then where you end up, no matter how good you think you might have started, right? So there's still a difference. And how could this monument in the riverbed be helpful after the waters covered it up again, in their particular instance, children of Israel? What does it represent? Stones in the riverbed, water comes back, covers it over, nobody sees it anymore except for reading it in the book. Or maybe dredging the, dredging the Jordan River. So what does it mean? What does it represent? I believe it represents that the old life has been buried. Not to be seen again. Check it out. It's like I was thinking, Lord, what does this mean? It's like he gave me, your old life was covered by the living waters. Isn't that cool? So, I mean, that's just a neat picture. Bury it. Don't look back. But understand who it was that buried that old life for you. Right? It's Jesus Christ. And I may be spiritualizing it a little bit, but uh, again, rocks in the water, stones in the water, really represent, in a sense, and again, they talk about the stones representing Jesus. Jesus, you know, when he, he died, he, he took your sins to the grave, right? Those stones representative in the, in the bed of the Jordan. But the second set of stones also representing Jesus to where they came to. And that's also how Jesus guides us in the new life. Jesus is always there for us, right? Burying rocks also you could look at, the Bible says, to lay aside the sin that so easily ensnares us. There's so many pictures that you could see for why the Bible speaks about this, right? And then also, uh, for those of you who have taken your maps, in case any of you are nodding off, you could take your maps out now. Look at, just above the Dead Sea, it's a little hard to see because there's a dark arrow pointing to the left. But you'll see Jericho, and then just above Jericho, you'll see Gilgal. Just, a, just above the Dead Sea, Jericho, higher to the right. <laughs> Jericho and Gilgal. And this is important because Gilgal, we're going to see in verse 19, is where the, the second set of stones was eventually set up. Uh, Gilgal is about two miles east of Jericho. The word Gilgal in the Hebrew, some of these words had a pool of meanings. Gilgal could mean circle, wheel, or rolling. And events often came full circle at Gilgal. First event, site where Joshua launched three campaigns against Canaan. He would, he would launch the central campaign, and then he launched the southern campaign, and then Joshua launched the northern campaign to clear out those indigenous people that God told him to. So each time he, he would launch his campaign, he would start from that location. Second thing, Gilgal, the place where worship took place by many instead of Jerusalem. As time went on, the people from the northern uh, kingdom would start worshiping in different places than Jerusalem, where God had prescribed for them to worship. 
Uh, and this was opposed by the prophet Amos and the prophet Hosea. As Anthony goes through the different prophets, you'll start to learn more about those minor prophets. Three, Gilgal. The school of the prophets in Elijah and Elisha's time. There was a school of the prophets there. And four, Saul was crowned king there. If you concordance Gilgal, you can see all the uh, popular things that happened at that site. Full circle. How often does that happen in our lives when we go full circle? Right? Things come full circle, sometimes back to square one. It's almost like getting lost in the wilderness. You know, you, you're lost, you're lost, and you, you kind of come to a place, hey, that rock and that tree looks familiar. You spin your wheels and eventually get back to the same spot. How many of us spin our wheels in life? You don't know where life as a journey is going to take you, or you just may end up, again, back where you started from. You're going nowhere. You ever feel like you're inside one of those wheels, <laughs> like the little mice, and they, they run and they run and run and run and spend all this energy, and then they rest, and they're on the same spot on the wheel because it doesn't go anywhere, right? Sometimes we can be like that. We could have good times in our lives and bad times, different Gilgals, right? Um, sometimes in life we think we'd be a lot further than we are right now. How many people think that? You look at your life and you say, gee, Lord, I think I would have been further along, maybe in my forgiveness, maybe in, in my career path, maybe in a relationship. We can look at so many things and say to God, I thought I might have been a little bit further than being over here. We can all see that. Verse 10. It says, So the priests who bore the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished, that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people. According to all that Moses had commanded Joshua, and the people hastened and crossed over then it came to pass, when all the people had completely crossed over, that the ark of the Lord and the priests crossed over in the presence of the people. And the men of Reuben, the men of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over armed before the children of Israel, as Moses had spoken to them. So you see that there's a group of armed men that cross over, right? And we've spoken about this before. Uh, two, two and a half tribes, the tribe of Gad the tribe of Reuben and half of the tribe of Manasseh said, we like, we like the, uh, the plains over to the right of the Jordan River. We, we want to build cities there. We want to raise a family there. Yeah, God said to go over to the promised land, but Moses, what, what if we strike a deal with you? We'll keep our families back to the, to the east side of the Jordan. We won't, they won't cross over, but we'll cross over and help you fight. And then when the fighting is over, we'll rejoin our families. So that was the deal that they struck. But we've said this before. The picture is not realizing, for our application, that's a picture of not realizing the full life of Christ. Incidentally, but not coincidentally, they would be set up, by encamping to the east side of the Jordan, they would be set up to be the ones that were the first one to be invaded by many of the armies and the indigenous peoples that were attacking the children of Israel. Because the Jordan was a natural barrier from north to south that we spoke about, where the children of Israel could arm themselves and prepare for battle as the enemies were crossing. But these people on the east side didn't have that barrier now that would normally be afforded to the children of Israel. But again, I look at it like this, not realizing the full life in Christ. People sometimes say, well, where God wants me to take me is too much trouble. I'll stay here. Now, I think God tries, I think, I don't think, I think it's, it's biblical but God stretches us. God brings us further than we ever thought we could be. He, he brings us to our human limits, and then he says, I will take you the rest of the way. But a lot of people don't want that. They just want an easy life in Christianity. Show me a person who's never been through hard times, and I'll show you a shallow person. I think it's very scriptural. 
<laughs> Some nodding heads back there. Uh, so, so that's where we're at, you know, not crossing over the Jordan, not realizing the fullness in Christ. And, you know, when I go through hard times, I don't like them either at the time. But when I look back, I realize that they were there for a reason. Verse 13. About 40,000 prepared for war crossed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord magnified Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Command the priests who bear the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan. Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come up from the Jordan. And it came to pass when the priests who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet touched the dry land, that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and followed and flowed, excuse me, all over all its banks as before. A lot of run-on sentences in the Bible. <laughs> my teacher would have a my grammar school teacher would have a problem with some of this. But uh, verses 13 to 18, two things: God magnified Joshua in the sight of all Israel. You know, you see people who are ambitious. You see people who who want it. They, they, they scratch and claw to get to the top. And unfortunately, it happens in ministry too. And ambitious people have to try to, um, how do I say it, demand respect from subordinates because they really want to be a leader and they may not have the respect and they really try to get it from people. But the funny thing is I've seen truly in ministry those who, uh, those who don't necessarily uh, are ambitious, God usually brings them up. Jesus says the, the lowly will be exalted. And those who fight so hard and are so ambitious to rise in ministry, God usually does something with them. He usually has to bring them down a few pegs. You know, it, it's whatever we think is happening in the temporal world, the way God likes it is usually the reverse. You know, he, he still confuses me. <laughs> I, just when I think I got it, he shows me something else, and I'm like, he just turns me on my head. But that's, what, that's cool. So, if God truly, again, he magnified Joshua in the sight of all Israel. If, if you're truly where God wants you to be, he will magnify you in the eyes of his people. That's what God does. So this picture doesn't come out in words in the sense when they cross over, the priests, they take the Ark of the Testimony, they cross over, and there's nobody left in the Jordan, and all of a sudden, Joshua doesn't have to say anything, God just goes like this, and all of a sudden the waters rush in. Now, the, now it's, you know, they, with the full force of the Jordan, everything goes back to normal. What a sight that must have been. I, I just don't think it comes out in words. It, but it must have been amazing for them to see that. Almost like, it's like everybody was watching and the waters were heaped up. And when the last foot stepped on the banks and came out of the water, bam, that was the signal for all the, the Jordan River to come back. Verse 19. It says, Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. Then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over, that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Again, understanding what happened at the Jordan should jog memories about what happened with the Red Sea. 
And it's clear, unfortunately, by the behavior of the children of Israel in the promised land, I'm sorry, in the wilderness that they had forgotten. At least they, they counted it as a small thing. The Bible in Hebrews, it speaks about certain behavior where you would, by your behavior, you would be trampling the Son of God underfoot. You would be walking on Jesus. Okay, I believe it's Hebrews, it could be Hebrews 10 or 5. I have to go back and look at it. But uh, again, Paul talks about that by your behavior, you'll be trampling the Son of God underfoot. And here, he had to remind them because their behavior in the wilderness showed that they had forgotten what God did during the Red Sea. Uh, he forgot what they did when he, he gave them water from the rock. He forgot about the, the manna. He, they forgot about the quail, right? But there's an expression, uh, actually, I don't know if it was the song first and then the expression or vice versa, but it goes like this. What have you done for me lately, right? People forget quickly what was done for them by God. Their relationship to God was they had selective amnesia with the miracles and the blessings, Unfortunately, people do have a short memory. And, you know, we can see it with people that we deal with. And that's why Jesus commands us to forgive often. Why? Because people hurt us. It's just the way human nature is. You can pour your heart into somebody, you could bless somebody, and then they turn around and it's like, you, like they didn't know you. They move on to somebody else. Jesus has to command us to forgive, and he also ties unforgiveness with salvation because it's a very important subject to the Lord. It's very important to him. Again, it's, hard, it's a heartbreaking experience to be burned after pouring so much into a person over the years. And just as our feelings get hurt, I have no doubt that God's feelings get hurt also. I mean, the scripture talks about God being a jealous God. God can be wrathful at times. God is loving. God is mercy. And, and I, I have no doubt in my mind that God's feelings get hurt. Can you imagine that? The, the, the God of the universe with so much power that as mighty as he is, his feelings get hurt. We can hurt his feelings. I really believe that. And you could see that reflected in the prophet Jeremiah. God asked through his prophet, read the book of Jeremiah. He says to the people, what have I done to offend you? Where have I hurt you? Why have you left me and sought after false gods? He asked through Jeremiah. That, that's a, 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 you know, he, he's, he's pleading with them. What did I do to you? Didn't I just love you? Didn't I take care of you? And he shows them all these analogies of how he took care of them. Why have you done this to me? You know, he, he's hurt by it. But there's an expression that goes, again, I don't know where the expression came from, but it's better to, to love, to be in love, and to be, then be brokenhearted than to never experience love, because love is such a powerful thing. Although human relationships can be a little precarious, we should always be indebted to God for generations to come. He's the only one that we can fully put our trust in and, and not worry about him stepping on our hearts, right? And here the children of Israel should have been indebted to God for generations to come. Now we're going to go a little bit into chapter 5, the first few verses, and then we're going to close it out. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1. It says, So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their heart melted. And there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. News travels fast. The Canaanites probably thought for a variety of reasons that the children of Israel wouldn't make that westward trek across the Jordan. Maybe denial. Maybe. Think about this. They saw what happened the last time. <laughs> we're big. We're fierce. <laughs> we're bad. You know it. 
You know, when they try to come through the southern end, they were like, there's giants in the land. And they, they beat feet out and said, we ain't going in there. They're scary creatures, you know. So, again, maybe the Canaanites saw the cowardice prior of the, of the children of Israel and thought, they're not going to cross over. Maybe the lack of, of, of watercraft, I don't know. But here, now they hear and they probably, they, you know, obviously they, they heard about the miracles of the Jordan being stopped. Some of them may, be, may have been spying out and actually saw the Jordan stopped. And their hearts melted at this point. Verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins or Gibeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised. But all the people who were born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us a land flowing with milk and honey. So Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore the name of this place is called Gilgal to this day. So you, you see here a reinstitution commanded by God of the circumcision. And he, he kind of goes into what happened. They, they left Egypt, they came into the promised land, those guys were circumcised. And then, you know, again, the forget, forgetfulness. Eh, who needs to circumcise the kids? And a lot of the people from that generation weren't circumcised. So then, you know, those people died and their kids came and that was the generation that was going to the promised land and that had to be reinstituted. What's the significance? Well, first you had the baptism, walking through the Jordan on dry land. That was a sign of baptism. Then you had now the circumcision. Why? Because before they could go any further in their walk with God, this, had, this rite was important because it symbolizes removing sin and starting off with a clean heart. There's a New Testament concept spoken of, meaning circumcision of heart. You, you, you had the literal circumcision of the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's a concept the Bible speaks about as circumcising your unclean hearts. So to, you know, there was a symbolism to that, obviously. Coming to God as you are is good. The Bible says come as you are. However, if you're going to journey with God, if you're going to walk with God, if you're going to get past the, the milk of the word and you're starting to grow in Christ and you're going to have that journey with him hand in hand, you need to be a new creature in Christ. You need to remove the foreskin of our lives and the foreskins of our heart. Now, a little bit about circumcision. In, in those days, without precision instruments, without antiseptics, without antibiotics, there would be bleeding, infection, soreness, and a fever would often accompany the process, especially as an adult. It must have been pretty painful. I remember when my son got circumcised in the hospital, and, you know, he was screaming anyway. They figured, well, let's just do something else while we're here. But they gave him his vitamin K shot to clot the blood. They gave him, you know, they cleaned him off, the whole deal. So they used a scalpel. So everything is done really nice. It's an interesting subject to talk about. Uh, 
But there's, there's, a, there's a reason for it. Why did God make the foreskin? Think about it. Because the circumcision, there was a, uh, an application, a spiritual application to it. Why didn't he just make every male, male born without it? There was an application spiritually. So there you have it. But we saw in Genesis 34, who says I don't go deeply into subjects, right? But we saw in Genesis chapter 34, if you remember, the, the beginning of, you know, everything happened in Genesis, right? But if you remember, Jacob had a daughter. Uh, maybe he had many, I don't know, but the one that's specifically mentioned is Dina. Remember Dina? She, end up, she ends up getting raped by the Hivites, Shechem, remember those guys? Uh, you know, it's, it's way back there, but... Dina's brothers, what they did was they eventually tricked the Hivite guys, right? And they said, okay, you did something pretty bad to our sister, but, you know, we'll, we'll do a truce. And one of the signs of the truce is they uh, said, you all got to be circumcised, all you Hivites. So they said, you know, they went for it. They bought a hook, line, and sinker, and they all got circumcised, all the males, right? Now, what Dina's brothers did, they were pretty devious. They all were devious many times. But what they did was, while the Hivites were recovering from the surgery, and the Bible says, I, I just checked it before I came here, it says they were in pain. These, these guys, her brothers come and they just slaughtered all the males. So this must have been pretty bad the few days after the, after the circumcision. So here, the children of Israel reinvent, not reinvent, they re-circumcise the males and they would have been very vulnerable. So another thing that we can get out of this is they had to trust God because they all would have been vulnerable, all those guys, right? And I think the application here is when God allows us to be in a vulnerable position, and we've been in vulnerable positions. We're not always, you know, we're not, we're not told as Christians to always have walls up. Sometimes we're vulnerable. But when God allows us to be in a vulnerable position, we have to trust that he'll protect us. It's very important. And again, circumcision is also a picture, really, of shedding blood and discarding of sin. There's a lot, of, a lot of imagery there. A few things to take from this passage. First thing is memorials and monuments. In our culture, nation, this is a, we, we do this often. We see World War I memorials, right? World War II. We see uh, the Vietnam memorial, right? The Korean memorials. They have, uh, you know, monuments and they have the names on the on the stones and all that kind of stuff and you know the whole thing with September 11th there's there's a lot of memorials regarding that and that's what we do as a people but why do we do it it's so that people don't forget five years down the road 10 years 20 years we don't want people to forget those incidences right because why because it's human nature to forget isn't it two expressions that I've heard I think very appropriate for this text number one Time heals all wounds. Have you heard that? <laughs> People think, and it is true, you know, uh, somebody wronged you 10 years ago, whatever. Hopefully you're not still holding on to something that happened 10 years ago. But when it happens, you're, you could be mad. You know, you could have smoke coming out of your ears. But enough time passes, enough time passes, and eh, I got bigger fish, fish to fry. I got other things to do now. I'm not going to hold on to that, right? The other one is those who don't learn from history are bound to repeat it. I got to tell you, when I was studying for the men's retreat, I went back into Kings, you know, Chronicles, good stuff, love it. It's a guy thing. The warfare, the history, really cool, right? I couldn't help but think that our country is heading down the same path. What did the Romans think in the first and second century? Hey, nothing's going to happen to us. We've been here for, for centuries. Well, eventually they were they imploded. You know, they're 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 uh, they're nation came to nothing. It dispersed into other parts of the world, right? 
Romans were really never conquered. They, they kind of blew up from the inside. I could see our country doing the same thing. And when I look at kings, I could see the spirituality. It, we're decadent. You know, there's the pornography, there's the abortions, there's all kinds of stuff that we're doing. You know, people are just lavishing themselves, and I, I just see us going down the same road. So many great nations, some of the, the greatest nations, didn't get conquered. Uh, they, they ended up ruining their own selves from the inside out. So those that don't learn from history are bound to repeat it. So bringing it home, if we're going to memorialize, which is, again, it's not a bad thing. It's good to remember those who died and the sacrifices in the world wars in Korea and, and Vietnam, etc., September 11th. That's a good thing. But what should be the most important thing that we memorialize? God. You know, God said about the Passover. The Romans said that the fires of Vestia, you know, the, the Vestial virgins, the fires of Vestia, right? The thing that they worshipped and idolized would burn forever. Anybody know where the fires of Vestia are? They don't exist. But God said to the children of Israel, he said, the Passover would be celebrated forever. You know, constantly. And even where there's atheism, you know, that's rampant in Israel, they still celebrate the Passover. They might not even know why they celebrate it, but they do it because God said it would happen. So, uh, again, bringing it home. We should be memorializing God in our lives and in our hearts. The second thing is they gave, God gave the children of Israel a fresh start. God is always looking to do a fresh start in us. I look at the parable of the wineskins. As a new Christian, I had no idea what the heck that meant. The wineskins and the wine, the patch, what is all that stuff? But the wineskins, um, <laughs> when the representation of God becomes old, dry, and unflexible, like those old wineskins, God does something new. Because when the new wine expands, when the Holy Spirit does a work, you know, the wine expands from the fermentation. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit doing something new. Those old, crusty wineskins can't, can't hold the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is that new wine. And it, again, it, that old, crusty wineskin of religiosity, stale religiosity, right? It can't do it. Otherwise, those, those wineskins will burst, Jesus says. And that's what he's looking for. So let's pray that God would renew us again and start something new in us. And that we would also be open to God starting something new in us. You know, we, we talk about it, we read it in the Bible, but... We, our hearts have to be open for God starting something new in our lives. Let's pray. Those old-